0: Yes, and we are back to recording, as you know the one where. I'm Stevie, and the other person you will hear is Stephanie. What other person?
1: There's no (gasps) other person here. It's just you, Stevie.
0: Can you freaking imagine? (laughs) (laughs) They all find out I'm just insane. I mean, that is also true. (laughs) True, true, true. All right, so this case is a big case that doesn't have a ton of coverage on it, which makes it really hard to research because... You can't find consistency. There's a lot of, not a lot of, but there's some things where I'm like, what is the truth and what isn't here? So I'll have a couple places where I'll be like, it's not really confirmed if this is what happened. But either way, I watched a TV show. It's one of my favorite TV shows. It's called Your Worst Nightmare, and it's literally just filled with Your Worst Nightmare. Just anything, oh. anything and everything you could possibly imagine happening to people is on that show. Sounds um, delightful. Yes. It's really, really interesting. I really like it. Um, I think they do a great job of picking cases. But like we all know, dramatization seems to get the best of everyone. So yep. I thought that the story, I mean, it's pretty much the same. But I thought that the story was a little bit different than it actually was. So I read Jessica Weeb's book, Shockingly Evil. I got some more information from that. But then I also got some more information from online news articles. And so there are some inconsistencies. So I tried my best to get the most accurate information. Otherwise, I think it's a a very interesting story. And I went through a lot of the court documents. So I have a lot of what the statement of facts were in the court case. So that kind of made it a little bit easier to put together. Let's get going. Are you ready? I am ready for my worst nightmare. (laughs) Seriously. A call came in to Jacksonville police on July 10th, 2005 regarding a welfare check for elderly couple Reggie and Carol Sumner. Carol's daughter Rhonda called to report that she was worried about her mother and stepfather because she hadn't heard from them for, for a couple of days and usually they would talk every two to three days. Ooh, yeah, that is not a good sign. Never. And at this point, it had actually been about four to five days, and so she was very concerned. Now, again, accounts differ here, but either she went over to the house and the police went there with her, but she was already there, or the police went separately. I think she was already there. So the police got there, and nobody was home. They knocked, nobody answered, but they noticed that the back door was unlocked. They entered the house and found some unusual things, but the Sumners were nowhere to be found. So, let's learn about the Sumners. Reggie and Carol Sumner were a married couple. They had been married for four years, and they had a very unusual but lovely love story. James Reggie Sumner and Carol Alford originally met in high school and were high school sweethearts. They were an enviable couple on campus, but after high school ended, they parted ways, Reggie decided to enlist in the Navy. After serving his tour, he was honorably discharged from the Navy. He got married and got a job working for the railroad. Carol ended up getting married as well, and she had some children. Her first marriage ended with divorce, but she ended up getting married again to another man who nearly killed her. Oh. She suffered years of abuse from her second husband until 1987 when Carol was shot seven times in her family home. What? Her husband took off and eventually turned the gun on himself. So but she lived. She lived. So I looked so hard for this. I looked for the original police report. I looked for newspaper articles about this. I couldn't find his name. I couldn't find her married name. Like, I tried so hard to find out what really happened, like, how she survived and where she was shot. And But right. I got nothing. So... Somehow, she survived. She got to the hospital, but she was in severe condition at that time. Eventually, after she left the hospital, she went home, and her 10-year-old daughter kind of became her caretaker, trying to nurse her back to health. She didn't really have anybody else to be there for her. Now, she was a single mother, so her daughter grew up really quickly and nursed her back to health. But she was a really resilient woman, and she knew that she needed to provide for her family, so she went back to work as soon as she possibly could. Wow. Wow. But it did take her about eight years to, quote, fully recover physically. So she struggled with it for a very, very, very long time. And that's just the physical. That's not the emotional, you know. Right. She was a civil servant for 25 years. She worked for the Citadel and the Charleston Air Force Base. But due to life being miserable, cruel, and unfair, Carol (laughs) was met with another blow. She found out that due to a blood transfusion that she received when she got shot, she had contracted hepatitis C no oh yikes yes and not only what, what year was this so the trip blood transfusion was 1987
1: okay yeah yeah that makes sense
0: so not only was this like physically you know a disorder that she had to deal with for the rest of her life but mentally she's like am i ever gonna leave this trauma behind i'm never gonna get away from the abuse that this motherfucker you know put me through and every day i'm gonna be reminded of this but again she was strong, and she continued to persevere, and she eventually got a new job at a cable company where she finally had a little bit of luck, and um, Cupid Sparrow came along. <laughs> You're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and while working, she received a call from a man named Reggie Sumner, and she recognized the voice. She was like, "Could this be my Reggie Sumner, my high school sweetheart, Reggie Sumner?" No. So she asked him. He was like, oh my god, yes. Is this Carol? And she was like, yeah, this is Carol Alford. And they were like, you know, instantly had that teenage love kind of rush back and they chatted for a little bit and they decided to get together. And they were like, let's meet up and let's catch up with each other. And they both did. And they basically fell in love right away. He had been divorced. She had been divorced. They were both in their late 50s at this point. But it was basically like no time had passed. And they fell in love really fast. It was a whirlwind romance. They quickly got married in 2001 and moved in together. Wow, that's really sweet. That's a really great little love story. Yeah. And everyone was like, super happy that they had found each other. And Carol's daughter, who, you know, had been through so much with her mom and you know could have been apprehensive about her getting into a relationship with another guy she didn't her first two marriages didn't go very well but she loved reggie she said that he was a very kind gentle and giving spirit and you could not ask for a better friend husband or stepfather oh wow that that is quite the approval exactly so soon the 61 year olds they're both the same age 61 were retired and they had decided to move to florida both of them were in very, very bad health. Reggie thought that the climate and weather in Florida would help them health wise, especially he had lung issues. Um, mm. And so he thought it would be easier for him to breathe, but it would also allow them to enjoy their retirement, you know, Florida weather, Florida sunshine, beaches, you know. Yeah. Typical retirement. Makes sense.
1: I mean, a lot of people their age end up going to Florida.
0: Exactly. So Reggie was diabetic and he had recently broken his leg in a fall which they said that this was a severe fall and that he was basically immobile. He needed a wheelchair. Well, yeah. He needed a wheelchair, a walker or a cane, but pretty much the wheelchair was the only way he could get around. Carol, because life fucking blows, got liver cancer and she was going through chemo. She also had diabetes, fibromyalgia and hepatitis C which she had gotten from that blood transfusion carol oh know. no but they're going to doctor's appointments they seem to be you know happy they were frail and old but they were happy and they were ready for retirement ready to spend the rest of their lives together in florida they're 61 at this point that's not that old no that isn't that's mm-hmm. not old at
1: all quite honestly like both my parents are older than 60 me too
0: yeah they but they both had rough lives you know
1: yeah i mean she was shot seven times so i think <laughs> yeah she has <laughs> a right.
0: Hold on yeah. So they had been in Florida for about six months when the welfare check was called in by Rhonda, Carol's daughter. So all of these factors led to them to believe that the Summoners didn't just walk away. And in fact, some they couldn't really just walk away. There's so much that they needed to survive that it's like very unlikely. Reggie physically could yeah. not walk away. Yeah, exactly. And then when they looked further into what was going on in the house, they knew for sure that this was foul play. So upon entering the house, first they saw that there was a fully cooked, uneaten dinner, fried chicken. It basically looked like Carol or Reggie had cooked the dinner, and then they had set out to for it to eat, and they were just about to eat, and then they just poofed in the thin air. They could tell that it had been sitting there for a couple of days. It wasn't like fresh. They found the summoners' dog unaccompanied and they knew that the summoners would never do that. And it looked like he hadn't been taken care of recently, so they knew that something had happened in a you know, it had been a couple of days. They also found stuff at the house that the Summoners needed daily, like their medication. So since both of them required so much medication, um Reggie being immobile, but Reggie was also insulin dependent. So he couldn't leave the house without his insulin and his diabetic kit and that was Mm -hmm. all still there the police also found carol's cell phone and day planner which her family said she would never leave behind they also found latex gloves strewn about the kitchen and they like how many like different pairs of latex gloves or like they said latex gloves strewn about that's what the court documents said there's no specifics as to how many but there was enough for it to be like not one (laughs) interesting yeah And then they noticed that some of the possessions that uh, the Sumners had were missing, like a computer tower, and then the Sumners' Lincoln town car was missing. So the police put a bolo out on the Lincoln town car and decided to start by looking at the Sumners' bank accounts, which is usually the first step that they take when they look for missing people because they can kind of track their whereabouts, see if they've been using their... Or forced to use. Yeah. So they noticed that there was some unusual ATM activity that did not align with the Sumners' usual financial behavior. They went to the banks and asked them to pull the footage in all of the ATM machines that had been used to see if they could find a picture or a video of someone using the ATMs. And they were lucky, and they did. And there were a couple of videos and pictures, and they found something that they were not expecting. It was not Reggie, and it was not Carol. It oh who was it? It was a young, white male. And in the picture in videos, they could see a silver Mazda behind him, but that was it. They didn't recognize this man. They brought this man's picture to Rhonda and their family and was like, hey, have you ever seen this person? And they were like, no, we have never seen this person before. I have no idea who this is. So now, you know, lights are flashing. Shit's getting real. Police are like, okay, we have to find them now. We're in dire straits. Something terrible has happened. Right. Ebola was placed on the mail as well as that silver Mazda that they pictured in the... Security camera footage. So Carol's daughter, Rhonda, turns to the media to plea for the safe return of her mother and stepfather. After this interview and about four days after the Sumners had been reported missing, a police officer comes across a Lincoln Town car that was abandoned in a wooded area at the end of a dirt road about 40 to 50 miles outside of Jacksonville, where they lived.
1: Yikes, that's never where you want to find a car by itself.
0: No. So No. no. So they called the Jacksonville PD and they went down to investigate. They found that the windows were all rolled down. The car was unlocked, but there were no keys in the car. There was no evident damage or issue that would cause the car to have broken down or for them to have stopped like a flat tire or nothing like that. Then they opened the car and they looked inside and they saw some very suspicious things. So they knew the first thing they needed to do was pop the trunk and see if maybe the summoners were in there.
1: Oh, God. Oh, no. Were they in the trunk? No. Because I was thinking that the minute that I was like, oh, God, they're going to be in the trunk.
0: No, they were not in the trunk. But what was in the trunk was four dirty shovels. Oh, good Lord. Nope, <laughs> nope, nope. They also found sand on the floorboards, pieces of duct tape on the floorboards, back seat and trunk. A random cup, which I don't know why that was in the police. Just a cup? Yeah. And a $5 bill with a piece of duct tape stuck to it. However, there was no fingerprints. The car had been wiped down. There was no DNA, nothing. It had been thoroughly wiped down before um, it had been abandoned. Abandoned. So very suspicious. Yeah. So when they were interviewing people in the neighborhood, they found a a neighbor who actually, (laughs) a neighbor to the Sumners, Janet Jackson not the no way they were neighbors with Janet Jackson <laughs> not the Janet Jackson but A Janet Jackson indicated to police that she had seen a silver Mazda at the Sumner's house 2 to 3 times around July 4th it's believed that they went missing on July 8th and another time around 11:30 p.m. on July 8th which is the time they're thinking that things might have gone down The same day that the car was found, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Department got a call from a man claiming to be Reggie Sumner.
1: Claiming to be, so I'm assuming it was not Reggie Sumner.
0: That is correct, Watson. (laughs) The call is sent to the detective on the case, and luckily the detective is great at his job. So he records the call and also tracks uh, the number, or or he pulls the number for tracking at that time. I don't think they could actively track it, or maybe they tried to actively track it, but they pulled the number and recorded the call. So he answered it and he was like, yo, bro. Like, what's up, Reggie? How you doing? <laughs> you know
1: how, you know how detectives talk <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> just
0: kidding. So he was like, who is this? And the guy the guy was like, hi, I'm Reggie Sumner. I just received a call from my neighbor who said that my garage door is open and my Lincoln is missing. And then I saw on the news that I have been reported missing and my, me and my wife and me and my wife are fine and dandy. Um, uh-huh. He said that they were in, in Delaware for a funeral, a funeral of Carol, one of Carol's family members. And then how come Carol's daughter didn't know about it? <laughs> exactly. So the detective was like, these don't sound like 61-year-old people. Um, <laughs> a man got on the phone and then a woman got on the phone claiming to be Carol and they did not sound 61. So he started asking them questions uh, about their identity, about their personal lives, and some of the questions they actually got right. They got their social security numbers right. They got some personal information right. right. But they couldn't answer simple questions like the number of pets they had, what the names of their pets were. And they also made some incorrect statements, which they looked into later. First, he said they were in a place called Corpus, Delaware, which doesn't exist. So they're at a funeral at a place that doesn't exist. They also asked about the airport that they flew out of and the airline that they used. And they said an airline that no longer does passenger flights only does cargo flights. So they used wait, has- wait, so
1: like in the past
0: few days,
1: this <laughs> airline no longer does passenger flights. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we
0: were the last one. We got, you know, upgraded first class because we were the last ones. Oh. Um, and it, no, I had been years and years and years before that was an active uh, passenger airline. Also, the reason that they were calling was because the bank accounts had suspiciously stopped working. And they were like, yo, we're the Sumners and we're fine. Can you please turn back on our bank accounts? Because, like, we need to use them. I mean, we're at a funeral and we're traveling and we need to come home. And they were like, sure thing. We will turn those on for you. We are so we read. know exactly where you are. Exactly. So then they used that information to track them. So they were already planning on turning them back on, but this just gave them more, you know, more reason to. Okay. And then um just to confirm their suspicions, they took the recording to Rhonda. I was like, is this your parent? Or your mom and stepdad? She was like, uh, absolutely not. So Uh-oh. they confirmed that these people were imposters. So because he had written down that phone number, they sent the phone number in to be tracked and the account looked into, and they found that the phone was a burner phone, and it was registered to a fake person named David Jackson and a fake- Hi, David Jackson. You're not real. <laughs> and a fake address in Charleston, South Carolina. But- I mean, at least that's closer to Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> they were able to track the phone's location and put it near the summoner's house on the day of the believed missing kidnapping situation. Oh, they yikes also found that that phone had called a rental car company. So the police contacted the rental car company and was like, hey, do you have a reservation under this phone number? And they were like, oh my God, yes, we do. It's a reservation for a silver Mazda and it has yet to be returned. Oh, yes. It's delinquent. And they were like, who is it registered to? And they said, A1 Tiffany Cole from Charleston, South Carolina. They were like, oh, Tiffany Cole. So they. Went- <laughs> Sorry, I'm being very dramatic. So they found out that the Coles, Tiffany Cole, actually knew the Sumners. Tiffany had grown up near the Sumners when they lived in South Carolina. I don't think I mentioned that. I said they moved to Florida, but they were originally in South Carolina.
1: Okay, I was gonna ask because
0: I wasn't sure if I missed that. No, but- I don't think I ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> they originally lived in Charleston, South Carolina, moved to Florida, which is about a three, three and a half, four hour and a half hour drive. So she, Tiffany. Grew up next to the Sumners. And she didn't know the Sumners very well. Obviously, they were just neighbors. But Tiffany's stepdad knew the Sumners. And her stepdad was terminally ill. And the Sumners helped take care of him as well as the the Cole family while he was dying. And, yeah. And when Tiffany had gotten older... I don't know exactly what age, but within the, right before they moved, so she's probably 24, they allowed her to buy their car. So when they were moving down to Florida, they kept their Lincoln Town car, but they sold a Chevy Lumina. And so they sold her their Chevy Lumina and said, hey, we'll give you a really good deal on it, which they did. And they said, you, could, you can pay us back when you have the money. Like, we'll do a payments plan, but, like, if you don't have the money, we can work it out. Like, it's not necessary because the house that they had in florida had already been purchased and paid for when reggie worked on the railroad so that they didn't have to buy that house so they basically had this huge profit from their house almost a hundred thousand dollars from their house that they sold in south carolina so they were like we're good financially like no you can take this car and pay us back whenever you want and feel free to come visit us in florida if you're ever down there like you know they were really really sweet people and she took this
1: kindness and then she murdered them. <laughs> that what? where this is going.
0: <laughs> All I have no idea.
1: <laughs> I guess we'll find out.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> I love my own writing. Do you want to hear this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would hope so.
0: They thought she was a nice, pleasant girl and were willing to help her and her family out in any way. So why does this person have a phone number under a mysterious name renting a silver Mazda that was seen in the surveillance video with an unknown male with the Sumner's ATM cards? Coincidence. (laughs) I'm just very unlucky. I bet it's a coincidence. (laughs) So the rental car company was also able to provide some more information because since the car was delinquent, they had sent some tracking signals to it to be like, where is this car? Because it's not, like, did someone ditch it somewhere? And so they had this car also in the vicinity of the Sumners. What? (laughs) I'm just thinking
1: about... (laughs) You know that one mouse movie with Fivel the mouse, and he loses his parents, and he's and him and his sister sing the song to find their parents. And I just kind of imagine that with the car company and the car of like, where are you, car? Come back to his
0: car. <laughs> what song? What? What are you talking about, Fivel? Like Fivel goes west and all of that. Oh, come on. Nope. They're like an immigrant
1: mouse family that comes to America. <laughs> yeah, the first one they come to America. I forgot from oh. where, and all these things happen, and like cats are there, and, <laughs> and then in the second one, Fival goes west. Like Five always gets lost <laughs> if I remember. Fucking Fivel.
0: Yeah, their car. It's the kind car of
1: like Home Alone, except for mice, and <laughs> during like the American Revolution, <laughs> or not oh, revolution. So like totally industrial different industrial revolution.
0: <laughs> so totally different. <laughs> Uh, oh, no. You. No, the car's name was FiveL actually. <laughs>
1: um, I would I would totally name a car Fievel. That's. Cool. <gasps> but then If you would... I ever get a second cat, I'm gonna name it FiveL. Oh, <laughs> uh, but then
0: your cat's gonna get lost all the time. I mean <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> um anyways. <clears throat> so they were able to confirm that this car was with this cell phone near the Sumner's house on the day of the of the missingness. So Tiffany has a brother, and Tiffany's brother is on probation. And so they think he might know where Tiffany is. So they're like, yo, give us Tiffany's location or you're going back to jail. And he was like, oh, okay. She's at a Best Western in South, in, uh, South Carolina and Charleston. <laughs> and they're like, cool. So they went to the hotel and or motel. I don't know. There was two rooms, but they're both under her name because she's very clever and uses her real name for everything. <laughs> so the police raided the rooms and they found Tiffany Cole in one room with a man named Michael Jackson. Not the Michael Jackson. No. Are you telling me they live next
1: to Janet Jackson <laughs> and she was with a man called Michael Jackson and they're not You're related?
0: This up. <laughs> and they're not related. No. I'm not making that up. Oh no. Yes. And so Michael Jackson was her boyfriend? And in the other room, they found a person named Alan Wade. So who the fuck are these people? So let's just give you a quick background on the three individuals that are found to be in these rooms. Tiffany Cole had a rough life. She was born when her mother was only 16, and her father was in jail, and he was never around. Her mother had numerous men coming in and out of her life, and a lot of them were abusive. Tiffany was emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by multiple men. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is another area that's a little bit unclear as to who abused her. It said that a stepfather abused her, but also her biological father abused her. And it said that the stepfather started when she was eight years old, and the biological father started when she was sixteen years old. But I could never find a, you know, a for sure. It could have been which is the which is the father that I don't know Sumners helped. I don't know which abusive asshole. I tried to yeah. No, I don't think I I. Because at this point, Tiffany was already out of the house because she ran away from home when she was in, in her teens. So I don't know if this was a new guy or if this was a different guy. Um, there's not a ton of information about who did what when. But I'm hoping that the father they were helping was not the abusive asshole one. But I don't actually know.
1: Yeah. We
0: get to choose what we believe. So I choose to believe that. They were a nice person and the Sumners were helping them because they were nice. Um, okay, so Tiffany, you know, after going through all of this, used alcohol and drugs to help her get through it. She was a teenager. She decided to drop out of high school, and she ran away from home. She was hanging out with the wrong crowd, and like her mom, she you know, learned bad relationships in that in order to feel loved, you have to be, you know, abused by a man. So every relationship she got into after that, the men mistreated her, abused her, and uh, she did not learn good relationship skills. Poor baby. Yes. That's really unfortunate. She eventually started working as a sex worker for a period of time until May 2005, when she met Michael Jackson in Myrtle Beach. So Michael Jackson was the exact opposite of what she needed. He also had a rough upbringing. His mother was addicted to drugs, and he was mainly raised by his grandmother. He had had multiple nonviolent convictions on his record for theft and fraud. And Alan Wade was a friend of Michael Jackson's, whom he had met about a year before the offense, and it's not super well-known But I think his life wasn't as bad as the other two's, but he was also significantly younger. Michael Jackson was 25, Tiffany Cole was 25, and Alan Wade was 20. So when they get to the hotel room and they arrest the motherfuckers, they look around the hotel room for any evidence of the crime and they find a shit ton. So in Alan Wade's room, they found the keys to the Sumner's Lincoln Town Car, which you're in South Carolina, four and a half hours. Why do you still have the keys? (laughs) Why do you have the keys? I'm so confused. A trophy, maybe? So weird, though, man. In Tiffany and Michael's room is where they found the most evidence. They found a suitcase filled with the Sumner's mail, financial statements, social security information, personal information, Reggie's wallet, and driver's license, as well as a check from the Sumner's checkbook made out to Alan Wade in the amount of $8,000. Wow. Wow. So they found a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, even more than that. But that's just the you know major pieces. The cliff notes, yes. So the three were arrested and brought in for questioning. They were separated and interrogated individually. Michael and Alan refused to talk. So their only hope was that Tiffany would give them information to help them figure out where the Sumners were and if they were still alive. So Tiffany did talk, but she did not talk. <laughs> she. <laughs> She came up with a ton of inconsistent stories. She said she had no involvement. She doesn't know what they're talking about. She didn't know they had, you know, any of the Sumners information. And then it was, oh, yeah, I guess I did call the police and pretend to be Carol. That was me on the phone. But I did not know that the Sumners were dead. And then it was, you know... This, this, and this.
1: Why did you do it? Exactly.
0: So we'll get into her te- her, t- her, interview and her testimony a little bit later. But she does give the police the information that they need to solve this entire case. She yep. tells them about a fourth person who was involved. His name was Bruce Nixon. He's 18 years old. What? Yes. So Bruce Nixon was a friend of Alan Wade's. And Tiffany said that he was also involved in this crime so oh,
1: damn it what i'm sorry i thought of a joke i was like trying to think of a joke right before you said bruce nixon's name and i couldn't think of it in time and now that you're talking i totally thought of the joke that i was gonna make what is it when you were like in his name and i was gonna say percy jackson <laughs> <laughs> <You're
0: so> stupid <laughs> um it's all the jacksons yep um okay
1: so sorry start over with uh so bruce jackson yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> bruce nixon Bruce Nixon was involved because he was friends with Alan Wade, and he actually lived in Jacksonville, Florida. So the Jacksonville police go to Bruce Nixon's apartment, and they arrest him. Yes, they live in Jacksonville. All the Jacksons. (laughs) I saw that look.
1: It came around. (laughs) The universe didn't disappoint
0: me. (laughs) He confessed pretty much right away, and he agrees to lead the police to the Sumners, and he tells them that the Sumners are no longer alive.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of figured See, that one. Yep.
0: Yeah. So police worst fears are confirmed. So with the police's information uh, from the investigation and from the evidence as well as Bruce's story, they were able to put together what happened leading up to the event and then the actual crime. In May of 2005, about two months before the events that took place, Tiffany had come down to Florida with her boyfriend, Michael Jackson. They had only been together for, I think, like a few days or maybe even a few weeks. Like it was a really, you know, short relationship. And Michael had introduced her to his friend, Alan Wade. And they stayed at Alan Wade's house. He lived with his mom in Jacksonville. And so his mom eventually kicked Tiffany and Michael out because she was sick of the noise, sick of the partying, and she thought Michael was a bad influence on her son. She was correct. Um, (laughs) So Tiffany and Michael, you know, didn't have anywhere to stay. They didn't have much money. So they call the Sumners because she had been told she could come and stay with them whenever she wanted. I think she had been there before, but I'm not entirely sure. I think she had been there to pay off, you know, make payments on the car, but I don't honestly know. Mixed. Nick Signal's there, too. Um, But she called them and was like, hey, is it okay if me and my boyfriend come and stay with you for the night? They just needed one to stay one more night. And she said, yeah, sure, like, come on over, you know. The Sumners were more than happy to invite them over. So she introduces the Sumner to her new boyfriend, Michael, and they end up staying the night. At some point, the Sumners mention the amount of money they made on their house.
1: No. You never, ever, ever, ever tell anybody how much money you have. Even your closest friends. Mm -hmm. Never. Not Mm -hmm. that that makes this their fault. it's not true at all.
0: Just never, ever, ever be truthful about money. (laughs) Exactly. So, So there's mixed information about how this happened, too. But from what I can gather, this is what I think happened. I think Carol Sumner was talking to Tiffany in a separate room. And Michael and Reggie were somewhere else. I think Michael was nearby because he overheard. But I think Tiffany was probably saying, I'm so sorry I haven't been able to make payments on the car recently. I'm really struggling financially, blah, blah, blah. And I think she said, we just made, like, almost $100,000 on our house. We are good financially. You do not have to pay us back. Like, it's fine. Like, I think she was being nice about it. Like, not bragging, not just saying, like, we're good financially. You focus on you. Like, she was just being the good-hearted Carol Sumner. Yeah. And Michael had overheard. So... Again, another thing that's not confirmed is that it's believed that maybe Michael had gone digging through the house that night, Um, him and Tiffany, when the Sumners were sleeping looking for financial information, but they may or may not have found bank statements with the actual amount of money they had in their accounts. Still, again, not sure. They had just moved there. They moved there in February, and this happened in July. So the next morning, Tiffany and Michael leave super early in the morning, and the Sumners, you know, say goodbye, come back whenever you want, drive safe, and they leave. So the sumners go back to their ordinary everyday life and you know never don't think twice about it. But Tiffany and Michael had been thinking about it every day since. I'm sure they had been. So over June and the beginning of July, Tiffany, Michael, and Alan had made several trips from Charleston to Jacksonville, Jacksonville to Charleston, Charleston, Charleston to Jacksonville Jacksonville to Charleston. I mean it was like insane. And that's a three and a half to four hour four and a half hour drive. And they did it like way too many times you know, when they could actually, like, be working and, like, picking money and have a job, and, you know. <laughs> I'm not killing people for money. Yeah. So, eventually, Alan called his friend Bruce and was like, yo, Bruce, do you want to be involved in a robbery with me? And he was like, yeah, bro, let's do it. So, that was a couple weeks before the murder, but a couple days before the murder, Bruce got another call from Alan asking, hey, do you want to come help me dig a hole? I'll pay you for your help if you just you know dig it with me and he was like yo sure yeah and so bruce acquired no questions asked no
1: just will you help me dig a hole exactly what is the hole
0: for you you didn't ask no asks so bruce acquired aka stole four shovels (laughs) i don't know where he stole them but stole four shovels and was picked up by alan tiffany and michael were in the car and that was the first time bruce had met tiffany and michael So because Bruce lived in the area and he had grown up there, they asked him, hey, like, do you know of a wooded area that's like super hidden where we could dig like a super deep hole? And he was like, oh, yeah, there's this place by where I used to live. I think it's perfect. (laughs) No questions asked. Again, yes. None. Correct. Well, according to, to Bruce, yes. No questions. So Bruce directed them to an area where he used to live and the four assholes got out of the car with the shovels and go deep into the woods and find a place to dig a hole. Bruce said he did not know what the hole was for. He thought he knew it was related to the robbery that was coming, but he did not know exactly what it was for. They told him to dig a six-foot-deep, four-foot-wide, six-foot-long hole, aka grave.
1: Hey, uh, that those exact specifications equal a grave. Are we digging a grave?
0: (laughs) According to him. And Tiffany, eventually, they had no idea. They thought it was for the stolen merchandise. They were just going to hide it there for a while or something. Though um, I could see that cognitive dissonance of,
1: I'm in too deep. I know literally. what this is for. <laughs> and I know if I ask and I know if I put up any type of fight, I'm in danger. Mm-hmm. So there maybe is that aspect to it of... He was
0: 18, too, and I he's with two 25-year-olds yeah, two and one 20-year-old who he hasn't met. He might be trying to act cool. You have no idea. But according to him and Tiffany, they had absolutely no idea. After the hole was dug, they spent the next two days together, all four of them. Bruce said the next day is when he found out that the plan was actually to kill the Sumners. He said that he had... Um, he didn't know if this was, had been, like, a previous conversation between the three of them before he got involved. He didn't know when this killing thing, like, officially happened, but he found out the next day. And he, Tiffany, all four of them were in the room talking about killing the plan, like what the plan was going to be. If they were going to be there when the Sumners got home, waiting for them after an appointment, or if they were going to knock on the door and just, you know, burst in, break in when they were there. How are they going to kill him? Michael said that they were going to inject him with some of their drugs and kill him that way. And so they had like multiple, you know, plans. And Tiffany was in contact with the Sumners and she knew that they had some Physican's appointments. (laughs) I hate you. I hate you. (laughs) you just did that. So, Stephanie, please tell them your physics story. So,
1: (laughs) all right, people. We all have those moments where sometimes you read things, and even if you're smart, (laughs) you read things the wrong way. Well, when I was in high school, I had to take the stupid plan testing, which was like, here's these general questions, and this is what you should do with your life afterward. And so I'm reading my results, and I'm getting, like, graphic designer and stupid shit. And then I look at the thing and I'm talking to my mom and I was like, mom, it says I should be a physician. <laughs> and my mom looks up at me and she says, a physician. <laughs> and I looked at it and went, oh, and she said, are you sure you got
0: high scores <laughs> on reading comprehension?
1: Because <laughs> those are my highest scores.
0: <laughs> well, and like <laughs> a physician, you have to be like super, super smart and you can't even say the word. Maybe that's not the right path for you. <laughs> And you know what? To this day, I will totally
1: admit every single time I read the word "physician" in my head, in my internal monologue, it is said as physic-in.
0: <laughs> and like Well, I mean, I you're not wrong. It, it looks- I have
1: to like translate it from like Stephanie's mind to real life people that it is not physiken. <laughs>
0: it is physician except for now i always say it as physicant just cuz it makes and me laugh now stevie's
1: being an asshole <laughs> calling it a
0: physician. <sighs> i also
1: can't say the word sprinkler
0: hey i read i read omnipotent as omnipotent for a very long time oh my god
1: that's amazing
0: you're not alone in this fight so remind me about the physican. Um, so Tiffany had been in contact with Carol and had known about what their plans were for the next couple of days. So she had been calling them under the guise of like caring, I think. And Carol had mentioned <laughs> <laughs> Carol had mentioned that they had doctors' appointments, physican appointments, and that so she kind of knew what was going on. And so she knew of times where she could go when they weren't there, but they hadn't really had a full plan yet. They were still kind of. You know, working through the details. So, eventually, uh, they go to Walmart and Office Depot, and they buy latex gloves, duct tape, a realistic-looking pistol that shot pellets. Like it was a pellet gun, but it looked like a fucking gun.
1: And You're pla- still going to get charged with a firearm. If you make people think you have a firearm, you get charged with having a firearm. <laughs> true, 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 true. I said firearm so many times.
0: <laughs> firearm. And plastic wrapping. They had plastic wrapping. All good things. Yeah. Nothing
1: sinister going on here. Not a kill kid at all. Mm
0: -mm. Tiffany also was really smart and she paid for all of these things, but she wrote checks, personal checks. Obviously, she didn't have the money, so she was writing bad checks. But all these checks were in her name. She signed for them. So she obviously was there when it was being purchased. Just please note that. Unless they forged her signature. No, they didn't.
1: Well, I guess with the check, you, you'd be like, the cashier, like, neither of you look like a Tiffany. <laughs> true.
0: <laughs> true, true, true. So July 8th came around and they decided today is the day or tonight is the night. So they made the decision that Alan and Bruce were going to go up to the house because the summoners didn't know them and they were going to knock on the door. So Tiffany and Michael dropped them off and waited around the corner in the Mazda until they got the all clear. Alan and Bruce knocked on the door and told the Sumners that they were having car problems and asked if they could use their phone. And the Sumners, being the trusting, caring, kind people that they were, invited them in and showed them to the phone. Then in an instant, Alan yanked out the telephone cord, grabbed Reggie, forcing him down on the couch. And then Bruce held up the realistic looking toy gun and told them if they cooperated, they wouldn't get hurt lies yes carol was begging them like don't hurt us take whatever you want like we'll be you know we'll be complicit so they complied they were just like go for it like do your thing yeah so they were bound blindfolded and gagged with the duct tape oh yikes and then once they were bound and they couldn't see that was the main thing that michael wanted because he knew that if they had gotten loose they could have identified him so once they had their eyes Covered. They use the walkie-talkie feature on their cell phones, which whoever used that, that has to only have been used for construction workers and murders. Um, false. My very first cell
1: phone was a damn Nextel cell phone in <laughs> my family. We talked to each other through those walkie-talkies because it was free. You didn't have to pay for minutes on the walkie-talkies. Uh, so we would constantly talk so to that each other makes through walkie-talkie. Sense.
0: <laughs> you know, I didn't have a phone so until- take back those words <laughs> sorry I didn't have a phone until I was 18 so I don't know these things okay sorry I apologize for making fun of you but still wacky talkie feature hello um the blind pool the calls just clear come on in niner
1: niner yeah you think they maybe be able to uh, recognize maybe michael's voice or especially tiffany's voice if she hops on the (laughs) walkie-talkie
0: so michael got went inside and they looked for financial statements pin numbers account information atm cards anything they could financially but also you know personal stuff that was worth value they didn't try they didn't take a lot of like the personal stuff the first time they went there but mainly the financial documents so tiffany went in and she reportedly this is a depends on who you ask. And she stole some personal items, including Carol's jewelry and Reggie's prized coin collection. So these were stolen. It's just not determined if she went in the first time or if it was the second time. It, it, it depends because they're basically trying to determine if Tiffany knew this was going to be a murder, a kidnapping. Like they were t- they're trying to determine what she knew, which I'll get into when I talk about her story when she testifies. According to most records, she went in and got some of the personal belongings and helped them look for stuff because she knew more likely where they were. So once they had all that information, Alan, Michael, and Bruce led the Sumners to the garage where they forced them into the trunk of their own Lincoln town car.
1: Two people in a town car trunk. That is
0: tight. Yeah, we'll get into their size in a little bit. So Alan drove the town car with Bruce in the passenger seat and the Sumners in the trunk. Tiffany drove the Mazda with Michael in the passenger seat, and the plan was that if a cop car, for some reason, was to pull either of them over, Tiffany was supposed to speed off and cause the police to chase her so that the boys could get away in the Lincoln to the pre-dug gravesite without issue. However, the police didn't stop them, but they did have to stop for gas because the Lincoln was low on fuel, so they did have to stop at the gas station with the Summers in the trunk, which is just sad and Mm. terrifying. So then they drove out to the wooded area where there was the grave, And Tiffany stayed in the Mazda on the road. I think she was like a lookout, make sure no one was following them, but also to make sure you couldn't see what they were doing from the road. So she stayed in the Mazda. The three guys got into the Lincoln and drove deep into the woods and backed the car up to the pre-dug grave. And like, so, okay, so even if she didn't
1: kill them... She obviously knew what they were doing. Like, why else would you take these people to the middle of the woods
0: to a hole that you dug? Whether you knew that the hole was going to be a grave or not, you know by now. She said she didn't. Yeah. So she said she knew at this point. She said she didn't find out that the summoners were in the trunk of the car until they got to the gas station or whatever. I'll That's get interesting. to I'll, yeah. I'll get to her, okay. her story soon. So. So the three of the three men uh, drove the Lincoln into, deeper into the woods, backed it up to the pre-dug grave, and went to pop the trunk. And when they went to pop the trunk, they realized that the Sumner's duct tape had come loose. Because the trunk was over 100 degrees inside, they started to sweat, <coughs> and they were able to remove most of the bindings, including the ones around their eyes. And they were holding each other. And then they're going to die
1: anyway, so what are I they doing?
0: But they were holding each other. Can you imagine? Over 100 degrees in that trunk. And they're stuck. So Michael freaked out and was like, I don't want them to see me. A, because they're going to recognize You're me. You're going to kill them. And then he says B, because I don't want to see their eyes when I kill them. Oh, sorry. I
1: interrupted you. No, mm-hmm. that's okay.
0: Yeah. That's okay. So Bruce and Alan uh, rebound them and re-duct-taped them all up. And... Michael told Bruce, Hey, go to the road, check on Tiffany, make sure she doesn't leave us. I don't really know why, but he was worried that she was gonna abandon them there. So he went to the road and hung out with Tiffany at the Mazda. And so for about thirty to forty five minutes, it's unknown what happened with Alan and Michael at this point. I'll get to it. But Alan and Michael come back to the car. They come with a Lincoln. Uh there's no Sumner's in sight, but they have a yellow piece of paper with the Sumner's pin numbers, pin codes. It's a pin number. No, it's a pin. I- I say pin number. I know, it's this Shit's Creek thing. It's just a pin. Personal identification number, not a pin number. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's like, I know my pin number. It's not a pin number. It's just a pin. Okay. <laughs> they then put the four shovels in the trunk of the Lincoln and drive away. They drive about 20 to 30 minutes and abandon the Lincoln where it was later found by the cops. They wiped it down and drove off in the Mazda. They did not waste any time and stopped at ATMs on the way to the hotel where they were planning on staying for the night. They get to the hotel and then Tiffany and Alan went to Walmart again and got more latex gloves, which I'm not sure because a box of latex gloves, you get like a shit ton. So I don't know why they're getting more latex gloves unless they dropped a bunch of them on the floor at the Sumner's and they don't have them anymore. But still, that seems like, why do you need so many latex gloves? Yeah. Because I, when I would dye my hair, I bought a, a huge thing of latex gloves. And I have so many that sometimes I use them to like clean up dog poop and stuff because I don't know what to do with them. Because I'm never going to use all of them. And I just have one box. Anyways. And they buy bleach. Which I'm pretty sure... Don't you think that the summoners would have bleach in the house somewhere? Like... Oh. Maybe not. I mean, I don't have bleach. Oh. I Wait, will. do I have bleach? You probably do. I don't
1: think I do. Do you have any Clorox like products? It. Yeah. I have Clorox wipes and, like, spray.
0: I think that has bleach in it. Because they bought Clorox. But I think they bought the liquid. But whatever. Who fucking cares? So... They went back to the Sumners. They took more things, like the computer tower, and then they went back to the hotel for the night. Bruce ended up leaving the next day. He left with $200 and a bunch of the Sumners' medication, pain medication. So he lived in Jacksonville, so he just went home. Tiffany... Alan and Michael all started their way back to Charleston, shopping along the way, stopping at ATMs. They eventually make it to the motel where they are arrested. It was later determined that they had been to 13 ATMs in Jacksonville and 7 ATMs in Charleston. So they were not... Jeez. Yes. Someone later testified that Bruce had gone to a party the next night or that night and he had been bragging about the murders and he had been seeing, carrying, using, and sharing a baggie full of the drugs that were stolen from the Sumners. And he was bragging that he got a new job murdering people and that he was going to receive $20,000 for these murders. What? Yeah. So... You know, he seems like this guy who's, like, just young and, you know, influenced. But then he does stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, you can do that stuff to seem cool. But also, who brags about that? Like, I could never imagine going to a party and like, I got a new job, bitch. I murder people. Yeah. I, I, they're
1: weird. Yeah.
0: So he ended up walking away with $200, but he was promised $20,000, reportedly. So Bruce decides to lead police to the gravesite and it's actually on film him breaking down crying at the gravesite, but he's crying because he realizes how much trouble he even says he knows how much trouble he's in.
1: Yeah, that's a it's like a selfish thing of yeah, I'm not worried about these people or the family or the other people I affected is oh no, I'm fucked and yeah. I'm upset about it.
0: Exactly. So, here's where we get into the shitty, shitty. So, the police and crime scene investigators went to the scene and started investigating, and obviously, the grave had been sealed over, so they couldn't see anything, but they could see that it was freshly moved dirt. So, they call in the crime scene investigators and the coroner and everyone to start digging them out. So, the summoners were about four feet under dirt, and they were in a kneeling position. But at some point... When they got into the grave, Reggie had gotten one of his hands loose and he was holding Carol's hand. So they were in the kneeling position, but his hand was reaching across holding her hand. And they were both obviously dead. There had been moderate decomposition, but they could still tell cause and manner of death. The police said that this was the most heartbreaking and devastating crime scene they had seen. Seeing them holding hands, how old they were, it was just like even more heartbreaking. I've been like,
1: Super emotional lately, (laughs) and this is not helping. It's like I seriously want to cry right now because that is so precious and just. Oh, that just shows the stark difference between them and the people who killed them, that these people would be so greedy and not care about human life. And that these two people were so there for each other that the last gesture, literally the last gesture you have on this earth is to reach for your wife's hand so that you can go through it. I'm going to make myself cry. No, it's literally
0: (sighs) so, so heartbreaking. And it gets worse, much worse. The bodies were sent to the medical examiner for autopsy. So just to talk about them and how frail they were. So Reggie only weighed 105 pounds and Carol only weighed 90. Oh, my God. They were tiny. They were tiny. They, they were made, nothing. No. And he couldn't walk. You know, he had his broken leg. They literally just just were tiny little angel babies. <laughs> I don't know how to describe them. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I think that cup out covers it. Um. There were no external injuries, but internally they found a horrible sight. The summoners had been buried alive. <gasps> what what? Mm-hmm. There was dirt in their airways, throat, trachea and esophagus. We need to pause because that was so much worse than I was
1: expecting. I was like ready for you to tell me that they had been bludgeoned and beaten and it didn't even take that much because they were so tiny. And then you said no external injuries. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, okay, so they had no external injuries, but they had internal bleeding from something. Did they get injected with something? (sighs) Because if you think about it in real time,
0: how long get into the grave, Mm
1: -hmm. they have to kneel down the grave. He takes her hand. And then they have to sit there and, like, hear the dirt and feel the dirt being piled on top of mm-hmm. them. And they can't do anything.
0: Exactly. And that's part of the thing about them being frail. All of this weight on top of them was, like, so much, but it wasn't enough to constrict them to death. So, obviously, this took, like, 30 to 45 minutes. And Michael points the finger at Alan and Alan points the finger at Michael. But I think both of them were probably… Oh, both of them. Yeah. But basically, what the medical examiner said is that, first of all, is they were in the kneeling position with their chest to their knees. Oh. And so the weight of the dirt just kept landing on top of them, and it was making it harder for their diaphragms to to expand. So they couldn't breathe deeply, but they didn't die until the dirt got up to their face and they were actually inhaling the dirt. And they said that it would have taken at least three to five minutes for them to die. She said it's possible that they lost consciousness after a couple of seconds, but it could have taken three to five minutes for them to die that way. That is a horrific way to die. Your worst nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. So the death was obviously ruled a homicide, the manner of death, and the cause of death was ruled mechanical asphyxia and smothering. The medical examiner said this was the worst case of asphyxia she had ever seen. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't blame her. I
1: I would have to agree. And I don't even know any of her other cases. (laughs) I
0: know. Now we get to the (laughs) justice part, at least. 25 year old Tiffany Cole, 25 year old Michael. Jackson, 20 year old Alan Wade, and 18 year old Bruce Nixon were all charged with murder, kidnapping, robbery, and home invasion. Good.
1: That is exactly what it was.
0: Yep. So Bruce agreed to testify against Michael, Tiffany, and Alan, and he pled guilty to all charges and was set to be sentenced after he completed testifying against the other three. So he pled guilty, but he wasn't sentenced yet. And the recommended sentence was 52 years, but that was all dependent on his testimony. Michael's. Well, tra- Florida is a capital state, right? Mm hmm. So Michael's trial was first. He testified saying that it was only supposed to be a robbery and that Alan and Bruce were the ones who kidnapped the Sumners. That he had no idea they were in the trunks until they were driving to the site to put the goods that they didn't steal because right now all they had was financial documents. They didn't have anything to bury.
1: But... You know. You just think it was all in the trunk and you didn't help put it in the trunk at all that you got there after they had put everything he in said the he trunk got and you assumed.
0: he said that they went into the house he and Tiffany waited in the car because the nurse would recognize him and that's why you know obviously I thought they were living because I didn't want them to recognize me it's like no, no, no. No, 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 no. but luckily we had Bruce and Bruce testified to exactly the story I just told you. He said that Michael was the ringleader and most of the planning was his idea, but Michael did say he was Reggie on the phone, but that Alan was the one who buried the summoners. It was not him. But luckily, the jury believed Bruce and relieved his testimony as well as the evidence that the prosecution laid out and he was found guilty of first-degree murder, robbery, and kidnapping, and he was sentenced to the death penalty. After Bruce finished testifying, Carol's daughter Rhonda stated that she just wanted to hug him. She said, I know he is a murderer, but in the end he did the right thing. Because without him, it was a lot of circumstantial evidence and they may not have gotten the conviction or the, you know, charges that they got if it wasn't for Bruce.
1: Yeah, it's rough because it is a little bit bit of he said, she said.
0: Yeah, but I mean, Bruce didn't minimize his involvement. And he matched some of Tiffany's story too. Tiffany obviously minimized the shit out of what she did, but he seemed to be pretty honest. And his account did match with the evidence that they did have, the circumstantial as well as some of the physical. So I do tend to believe his story because he was the one who had the toy gun. He was the one who did X, Y, and Z. So Next was Alan's trial. He was also found guilty and sentenced to the death penalty. And finally, we get to Tiffany's trial. All three of them did testify during their trials, but tiffany's is the most questioned as if she was guilty or not like how guilty she was so i'm gonna read what she testified to what happened so according to tiffany tiffany and michael met in may 2005 at myrtle beach in june tiffany met michael's friend alan in jacksonville later in june they went down to jacksonville again and had a little bit of money enough to stay two nights in a hotel which this is the like i'm telling you it's conflicting because this is what she says but she stayed at The parents' house, was this a different visit? Like, when did they have money? I have no idea. Yeah. They wanted to stay one more night, but couldn't afford it. That's when Tiffany remembered Carol offering Tiffany a place to stay if she ever was in Jacksonville and wanted to visit. So they stayed one night at the Sumners, and at one point, Carol mentioned to the $99,000 house sale profits. They had made multiple drives to and from Jacksonville and Charleston to hang out with each other. And then on July 4th, thing one, thing two, and thing three, um, made another... (laughs) That's how I write my notes when I get frustrated with people. Tiffany, Alan, and Michael made another trip from Charleston to Jacksonville to start a business. It said that Michael was looking for a building so he could start his own business. Now, with what business? Doing what? Where? When? How? What building? What? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) He only had $20 to his name, so good luck starting a fucking business. Um, so she had to start writing bad checks along the way to, you know, get them to this place. And I, I don't, I still don't understand her story entirely. But okay, so on July sixth, Tiffany overheard Michael and Alan talking about getting some property and talking on the phone about digging a hole. She asked Michael what was going on, and he said he and Alan were going to steal from the Sumners. So she was like, "This is the first time I'm hearing of this." <laughs> What a crazy idea you have! <laughs> and I want nothing to do with this. And I literally put dot 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 powdy face. No, <laughs> poor me, I did it. So it turns out they were talking to Bruce on the phone. Michael and Alan. So they ended up picking up Bruce and they drove to a secluded wooded area where Bruce used to live and that's where they dug the hole and she assumed it was for hiding the stolen property. You know, she saw the, you know, six foot deep, four foot wide, six foot long, you know, hole, but she said that they thought that that was where they were going to put the hidden, the stolen property and that's why she bought the plastic tarp was to waterproof it. But the duct tape and the latex gloves. Full of it. Exactly. She said she didn't pick out the murder kit items that Michael had gone and picked it out. She had just written the check and she didn't know what they were for. So she said she dropped thing one. <laughs> so she said she dropped off thing three and thing four at the Southerns. <laughs> That's so great. Thing one is Michael. Thing two is Tiffany. Thing three is Bruce. And thing four is Alan. But they're very interchangeable because this is a made up story. <laughs> So she said she dropped thing three and thing four off at the house and she and thing one stayed in her car. Thing three and thing four called on the walkie-talkie thing and said that they were blindfolded. She dropped thing one off down the road and got spooked when she saw someone walking down the road with a flashlight. So she drove off in the mazda and then she gets a call from thing one saying where the fuck you at like you leaving us here and she's like no i got spooked and then he's like come back and she's like okay and so she comes back as the lincoln is being backed out of the driveway so she didn't see the robbery she didn't see the kidnapping she just sees the lincoln being backed out of the driveway she picks up michael she doesn't know what's going on she says that they're in the car and all of a sudden she hears thing one and thing three talking on the phone and is like oh my god, the summoners are in the trunk? What? This was not part of the plan. (laughs) I did not agree to this. Exactly. Oh, and so she said that she actually did, she thought that this whole thing was Michael's plan, that she didn't think Alan or Bruce thought that they were going to be killed. Again, this goes against what Bruce said, but she says that she didn't know, she thinks that Michael was just kind of like making the rules up as you went so she said that alan had told her the Sumners were taken just to get their pin codes so she was like okay well they're just gonna let them go in the woods once they get the pin codes and she thought that that's what alan and bruce thought too so when they came back to the car she thought that maybe they were still alive i don't know she admitted to the phone call and going back to the Sumners, she said she had tried to cooperate with police after her arrest and give the detectives the best information she could. But she said she did not knowingly participate in the planning or actual doing of the kidnapping, robbery, or murder of the Sumners. Do you believe her? Hmm.
1: Not really. I mean, yeah. you. Uh, I think maybe on some level she maybe be- or has to believe that or like
0: yeah we'll get in- has to
1: stick to that story because mm-hmm. what happened was so awful.
0: Exactly. So we'll get into that a little bit. So I tried to find the victim impact statements so there's three victim impact statements read. Oh sorry, she was found guilty. Um but during the pen <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, she was found guilty just the same as the guys. So during her penalty phase, when she was going to be sentenced, there were three victim impact statements. One from Reggie's sister, Jean Clark. One from Reggie's sister-in-law, Carolyn Sumner. And one from Carol's daughter, Rhonda, who was read by Carolyn Sumner because uh, Rhonda didn't want to read it. So she read it on her back. Yeah, I could not even freaking imagine. I tried to find information about the victims of like things that they like to do because I wanted to do our ending subject where we pick something they like and we talk about it. But I could not find any information about the victim impact statements except when they're talking about the people who did the crime not their loved ones so Mm -hmm. i couldn't find anything that talked about them as much but basically you know those three victim impact statements were read and then a bunch of people were brought up on behalf of tiffany basically saying she doesn't deserve the death penalty her mom spoke and talked about her rough upbringing a couple of her cousins i think spoke and then a bunch of people from the jail spoke so jail administrators as well as correctional officers and prisoners basically saying she was a great prisoner she was a great person didn't deserve the death penalty. Life in prison is good enough for her. Her lawyer stated she wasn't a major participant in the crimes and was under the control of her boyfriend. The judge, however, did not agree. He stated that she held the flashlight as the grave was being dug and was present when the Sumner's were placed in the trunk. She purchased the supplies and pawned the Sumner's stolen items. Did I say that? No, not the pawned part. Yeah. So on her way back to Charleston, she pawned the t- computer tower as well as Carol's jewelry. Wow. And at this point, she knew she was dead. Oh yeah, she had to have. I think eventually, she admits that she thought they were probably dead. Quote: What gave, what, what gave you that clue? <laughs> what, what gave it away? Don't be suspicious. 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 Don't be don't be suspicious. Don't be <laughs> so the. Judge said, quote, "She was thoroughly involved. She knew exactly what she was doing and participated without hesitation. And without her, the Sumners would never have a connection with the other three men. She is the center point of this."
1: I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, they—they they are responsible for their own actions, but
0: yeah. During sentencing, they also had a psychologist who interviewed Tiffany to testify to Tiffany's mental health. First, he testified that she did not have a psychotic disorder. She was sane. She was competent to stand trial. Yada, yada, yada. But he did say that she suffered from poly substance and alcohol abuse, chronic depression, and a personality disorder. Not otherwise specified. Oh. Yes. So we'll get into some... Points at that in a little bit later. So he said that, quote, lifelong stressors helped shape Tiffany's mental state. She was diagnosed with a personality disorder based on the following attributes. One, her abnormal dependency on others. Two, her masochism for seeking things that caused her problems in life. And three, she had cluster B features that led to failures of conscious to stop behaviors. We'll get into the clusters a little bit later as well. Yeah, I think I remember them. Yes. Quote, she had a pathological need to be in abusive relationships and she was a follower and wouldn't have initiated the crime, but wouldn't have stopped it, which I think we can agree that's probably how it went down. So she was sentenced to death. She was the third youngest woman on death row in the United States. Uh, She was in Florida. Bruce Nixon was actually sentenced to only 45 years instead of the 52, I think because of his testimony. I am thinking the judge was a little bit more lenient. So I looked all these people up on the interwebs um, at Inmate Records, which is super fascinating. Alan and Michael are still on death row. They are still alive, but they are on death row in, you know, 23 hours a day, solitary confinement kind of thing. Um, Yikes. Yeah, and they've been that way since 2007, and there's no scheduled execution date for either of them. Bruce Nixon is scheduled to be released on August 7th, 2048, so I don't know if that's, like, set in stone or... That's not 45 years, because they committed the crime in 2005. But either way, maybe they only have to serve a certain part of their sentence.
1: Yeah, you usually have to serve at least 80% of your sentence.
0: Obviously, there are not a ton of women on death row. So Tiffany was interviewed quite a bit about her being on death row and how she thought that, A, she wanted to abolish the death penalty, but B, she thought it was unfair that she was on death row and she was basically fighting for her life. She did an interview with Diane Stoyer where she said she isn't that person anymore. She looks at her sentence as life row instead of death row. She says, I have peace, I have joy, I have a sound mind. So she said that she is doing well, but she doesn't want to obviously be put to death and she thinks that it's legal a murder. She was appealing the case at the time, but then in 2017, her death sentence was thrown out and she was given a new sentencing hearing because in 2016, Death penalty cases that did not have a unanimous vote for the death penalty were considered eligible for new sentencing hearing. So, her Oh. Yeah, so her vote was 9 to 3 for the death penalty. So, because it wasn't unanimous, she gets another sentencing hearing. When I look at her inmate profile, she's still on death row, but she's not sentenced to death. Like, her their, her sentence thing is just open. Yeah, She is sentenced to life in prison for robbery, I think. So, obviously, she's not going to get any less than life, but it's it's either life without parole or death. And so, right now, there's not a scheduled hearing for her to get her new sentencing, but right now she's off. Not scheduled to be executed. Does not have a death sentence mm-hmm. right now.
1: Yeah, it's tough because I definitely agree that it's legal murder. Like, I don't agree with the death penalty, but it's, like, hard because of the awfulness of what happened. Exactly. It's, like, hard to feel sorry for people like this who are about, exactly. you know, it's like, well, I may not believe in the death penalty, but. Exactly. It's hard to really fight myself on it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Prosecutor Jay Plotkin said, quote, I was a prosecutor for more than 20 years. There is not any case that I prosecuted where the crimes were more vile or cruel than the torture and murder of the Sumners. This case lingers in the heart and soul of our community. Mrs. Cole is certainly entitled to and should exhaust all of her legal rights to appeal. I am personally confident that she received more than adequate representation and a fair trial. Because at this point, she did have appeals left. They have all exhausted their appeals by now, but she does have that new sentencing hearing that's not scheduled yet. But yeah, so that's pretty much it. Like I said, I couldn't find too much information about the Sumners. I can just tell you that they're fighters and they fought till the very end. They were very in love. They had a wonderful romance, but they also had really shitty, shitty life luck, man.
1: I, right? Especially Honestly, Carol. They couldn't catch a break. At, and just when you think that they are because they're, they, just, they made such a profit on their house and Reggie was able to buy the one and florida and so they were able to keep the profits of the old house and it's like uh nope yank and we yank get yanked away in the worst way possible
0: and <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: like the worst way imaginable
0: yeah so this is a horrible case all around so i said i was going to talk to you about the clusters of personality disorders stephanie and i have a psychological backgrounds in multiple ways what up <laughs> we also studied it what <laughs> um So there's three clusters, cluster A, B, and C of personality disorders. So cluster A is the odd or eccentric behavior. That includes paranoid personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, and schizotypal personality disorder. Odd and erratic, typical what you think of when you think of someone who is quote unquote psychotic or schizoid. And then cluster B are personality disorders characterized as dramatic, overly emotional, and or unpredictable thinking or behavior. So these include antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. And she was in the cluster B. Tiffany was. And then cluster C is anxious or fearful thinking or behavior. This includes avoidant personality disorder, dependent personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So I thought that this was super interesting topic. Because it's personality disorders are so like ever changing. I mean, even in the f- past, like, you know, few DSMs, there's been changes into what is considered a personality disorder. And so Tiffany wasn't diagnosed with a specific personality disorder because she didn't meet the criteria of a certain one, but she met enough criteria to be considered one. That's why she's a personality disorder, not otherwise specified. Um, But yeah, she- that one's
1: kind of there is like when you don't quite, yeah, like meet the qualifications of certain ones, but you're de- there's definitely something going on here that's. Atypical and mm-hmm. definitely dysfunctional to your life, or mm-hmm. distressing to your life, and all of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I struggled to find a fun fact for this week. So I was like, you know,
1: I thought that was the fun fact.
0: Well, that that that, that that's part of it. That's kind of why I did it. But also, like, I was like, fried chicken facts, and then I was like, oh my god, I had so many dead chickens. I don't want to think about dead chickens. Oh so my gosh, I'll give you one fun fact about fried chicken. Guess where fried chicken originated? The South, Scotland.
1: You're no. Uh, I'm hundred percent. You are
0: messing with
1: me. No. What? Scotland? They eat sheep's brains <laughs> and intestines. Um, excuse me. They're gonna be very upset with you. <laughs> uh, no. That's a fact. Like, <laughs> actually, like white and black pudding is actually really good. What is that? Basically, it's uh, it's like a sausage. Mm-hmm or like a yeah but but, it's called pudding um, black pudding is like the blood of the (gasps) sheep and the white pudding is with
0: the brains (sighs) it's actually really good (laughs) okay so here we go I will pull up the actual facts so that I can prove that I am right credit to the Scots or the ancient Egyptians (laughs) okay i did not read that part is this ask jeeves is this the <laughs> is this the source material no it's multiple sources let's pull up this the first one it's national fried chicken day fun facts it's today's not national fried chicken day what is actual national Fried chicken day i don't know july 6th <gasps> that was like two days before they were killed <laughs> you've got to
1: be kidding me. And they had fried chicken. Oh, yeah. well, they didn't have fried chicken. They oh. were supposed to have fried chicken. Also it a was tragedy homemade. in this. Can you imagine? Yes. Like, like, Even if it wasn't fried chicken, like just about to sit down at dinner.
0: So hungry.
1: And then all this shit happens. Like on top of everything else. Like, couldn't you eat my fucking dinner?
0: <laughs> okay. So the Scottish invented fried chicken. They were the first to deep fat fry it. It had previously been baked and broiled in the US. Before World War II, fried chicken was considered a special occasion dish. Mm. 6% of Americans eat fried chicken every day Every day Every day 6%? That's, that's too, too many percent No,
1: that's too much every It's not special anymore If you eat it <sighs> no. every day
0: And the secret behind KFC's successful fried chicken Was actually the purchasing of the first commercial pressure cooker ever produced in 1939 Which Colonel Sanders purchased and converted it into a pressure fryer
1: wow
0: yeah so there was a lot of other Look ones at him. yeah <laughs> you think you're better than me you think you're better than me <laughs> but <The pressure> cooker. <laughs> but yeah so that is the story of this week that was the Sumners your worst nightmare to a t
1: honestly um like is, the,
0: is there anything even else
1: like as if the show is your worst nightmare this is obviously the worst nightmare so it was just reruns of the same
0: episode season after season or no th- i have so many cases what's worse no. what is worse oh my <laughs> god the worst episode ever is the first episode well okay no 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 no, no. There's, there's two ep- okay i'm gonna talk about a lot of those episodes here because they're fucking insane and when you think there can't be many more there are so many more it's terrifying. But Things we do each other. Seriously. But I have a bunch of them written down. I actually have scheduled out our next recording for the entire year. Yeah, so we are going to have it scheduled, but I do have a bunch of Worst Nightmare episodes in there that obviously I have to do a ton of research on to make sure that we have the right facts, because there are some facts. Like, in the Worst Nightmare episode, they say that Tiffany was, like, a granddaughter to the Sumners Or a daughter. But that's, like, super speculation. Yeah. Like, that... They were just trying to make it, and they said that she's the one who helped bury them alive, which nowhere else did it say that she had anything to do with the burying alive. Mm -hmm. But anyways, yeah, so it's hard for me now to watch TV shows. This podcast has definitely ruined true crime TV shows for me, because now I'm like, what is the truth? This was
1: your idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good to know, though. Not be ignorant, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, so thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on Instagram. I post stuff there every now and again, especially when new episodes are up. We also have a Twitter and all of this information as well as pictures, sources. Remember the show I watched was Your Worst Nightmare and the book I read was Shockingly Evil, Jennifer Weeb. I'll put all of that information as well as links in the show notes as well as on the blog. We have an email. Email us at youknowtheoneware at gmail.com or youknowtheoneware everywhere else, um, youknowtheoneware.com. We'd love to talk to you. Because we don't get enough communication with the outside. Well, I don't get enough communication with the outside world. <laughs> Speak for yourself. She has friends and things to do. But yeah, so thank you. Anything to add, Stephanie? No,
1: I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. So thank you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. This is why you can't trust anybody ever. Can't tell them things or do things with them. Nope. Thanks for listening. Go have nightmares. And then I'm sorry.